Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hey there, Food Junkies listeners. Listen, in episode 64, we introduced you to Catherine Kersey from our first food addiction research clinical study group. Clarissa and I represent Team North America and have facilitated three total groups so far. We will be presenting our results concerning this level of food addiction treatment in Bristol, England on Friday, May 20th at the International Food Addiction Conference. We've been pleased with the results thus far and are looking forward to this opportunity to bring more awareness about the need for treatment of this disease. We're also excited to connect with the world's leading expert in food addiction. And if you get the chance, you should join us as well. We would love to meet you. There's just nothing like in person after zooming our brains out for the last two years. If you're interested in attending, be sure to check the show notes or Google PHC Food Addiction Conference. The Public Health Collaboration is the one funding the study, which is still ongoing. If you're looking to be a future participant, we're looking at starting two more study groups in June. Reach out and let us know if you're interested. Check the show notes for one way to connect. Okay, today we have Nancy Kaylee from the CORE Retreat Program in Minnesota. We had the chance to talk about Nancy's personal and professional path, the core retreat program, residential treatment needs, what the core retreat entails, finding your we, relapse, recovery, and spirituality, how to avoid professional burnout, aftercare, how core addresses cross addiction, challenges the program faces, and our signature question. Welcome, Nancy. Okay, welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. My name is Dr. Vera Tarman, and I am your co-host today, along with Molly Painshaw. Today, we are interviewing Nancy Cayley of the Core Food Recovery Retreat. Nancy Cayley is the Program Director and Facilitator of the Core Retreat. She is a licensed alcohol and drug counselor who has worked for over 20 years in the addiction field and specifically in food addiction since 2014, I think. She has maintained, personally maintained, a 100-pound weight loss and has improved health and neutrality around her food. The Core Retreat is a food recovery nonprofit program located in Minnesota. Basically, it uses the 12-step model to help people recover from food addiction in a five-day inpatient setting at an extremely affordable cost. So we at Food Junkies are super keen to hear about the core program, how it started, how it runs, as well as, of course, its successes. So welcome, Nancy. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. I'm honored. So, so can we start with a bit of your personal story, as much as you're willing, of your story of sugar or food or eating addiction, and then how you got to the core program? Oh, certainly I'm willing to share. I, um, well, my mom tells me the story of my grandma. In, I was in a high chair, so I'm young, and my grandma giving me several fudgicles, you know, the frozen treat in a row. 
and my mom kind of calling her and saying, you know, don't hey, you know. And my grandma's response was, well, they make her so happy, but they make her so happy. And I can picture myself and that that made me happy. And what I also know to be true is that I have a sister close in age from the same parents, same household, who most likely would not have been soothed by fudgicles, right? And so that's a story that I don't have memory of, but for my personal memory of myself and food, specifically sugar, I do not have a memory of not chasing it or craving it or being too excited. No, I'm not going to say too excited because at that age, I didn't know I was too excited, just very excited about sugar. That meant I would eat all of my candy at whatever holiday it might be, or if we were um, able to buy it at the penny candy store next to my grandma's house, I would eat all. I would then try to get my sisters and any other candy that was around. You know, holiday gatherings when we would all gather. To me, not only playing with cousins and and being around that noise and celebration of aunts and uncles and family was the idea that there was just free range on the food. I know after school, I would come home from school and I was a bright student. I was a pretty easygoing kid. I had lots of friends, but my sister and I would walk home from school together. And I remember that the way I walked home with intention about my after school snack was different than the way my sister did. And this was the time for me that I was able to concoct things. And so I taught myself to bake at an early age out of the Betty Crocker cookbook, probably the one that my mom got for her wedding, right? one of her bridal showers. And I would teach myself how to bake out of that so that I could get that sugar that I was craving. And so when I came into the realization about this, truly came into not just the realization cognitively, but spiritually and emotionally and mentally, that this truly is an addiction, a physiological response to this food, I was able to look at all that and understand that it's not something that I, that it's really not about you know, because I was in over my lifetime, I'm living a life, you know, in my family. I love my, I love my friends. I have friends, I have activities. I'm in, you know, I was in sports, but always that relationship with sugar was, was important. And there was, I was chubby. I did get chubby because that's, what's going to happen. You know, if you eat it, if you bake enough cakes after school and, and eat more. And so there was that kind of Nancy, that's enough, which is, that's all, you know, so how, did, how, how did you get? How did you get to the? You said you came to a realization. So what was your aha moment? Well, at age forty-seven, right? <laughs> I did have you know. There's moments of clarity along the way, and all those attempts to try and to try to control. And I submit, having worked with twelve-step addiction for as long as I have, that even in my own recovery journey from alcoholism, which I found at a young age, I do remember my first treatment experience and my first seeing step one for the first time and being a bright young woman, I knew that they wanted, they, you know, it's always, they wanted me to quit everything, all of it. And my response, my automatic response was, Oh, not yet. Mm -mm. No, I got to go out and try to control this a little better. Several years later, I embraced it in terms of alcohol for myself. And I think what a lot of us, I, for me, I've met a lot of people that have found that as soon as I, as soon as that one kind of went over here and I rested comfortably in my sobriety, that sugar was front and center again. I remember early sobriety, my, my mouth being raw from so many sweet tarts and lemon heads, you know, and so I was looking for the best hit, wasn't I? In addition to all the other stuff and then poor eating habits generally, you know, all the carbs, very little protein. And so that was years of battling weight then, wasn't it? And restricting and dieting and all the programs and and then pregnancy, a few pregnancies and just abandoned, right? Because now that's just, and I'll, I'm sure I'll lose it at some point because it's always the weight. 
is what we think it's always the weight, but it's, it's also that battle. And it's that almost daily defeat at times going to bed at night and thinking, oh, a resolution tomorrow to do it differently. Trying, you know, really making some attempts at times to do it differently. What was missing for me, and I did get into Overeaters Anonymous. I had a, well, I had a colleague, a wonderful colleague that came in and she had known about sugar addiction in her life. And I remember her saying to me when we had almost first met, we were going to work together. She was a family counselor that came into one of the treatment centers I was working at. And she said, you need to give up sugar, probably. That's going to be kind of your last. And I thought, oh, how rude. Right. I mean, what a buzzkill she was to me at the time. I thought I can get very healthy without that. Thank you. Like, and I, I, and I was willing to work on all other parts of myself. Not that, not yet. Right. That first step. And then I remember the first time I made it to an Overeaters Anonymous meeting and I wept throughout the whole thing. And I, and I knew, but I, again, just like that bright 19 year old that knew what it meant. It meant I was they, and again, when you're in that mindset, that's what it feels like. It feels like you're doing some sort of battle, right? They were going to ask me to give up certain foods. Not yet. And I had this, I, I had this wonderful place in Overeaters Anonymous with these people that would welcome me back over eight years. Eight years into that kind of in and out and trying to give up some sugars, the obvious sugars, not the white flowers, you know, sometimes giving up diet soda and sweeteners and then taking them back again. And always living in the craving, frankly, never really having a true idea of what lack of craving was or what that freedom from that obsession was because I was continuing to be half drunk, I guess, on the food. I found core. I was at a professional conference for counselors. And they had a booth, they had a beautiful booth set up. And I was going to O at the time and I saw them and I recognized pretty much what they could do. I would, you know, what they did. And I kind of, and honestly, this was my take. I thought, well, that is a nice thing you guys have going on up there in Bizeta, Minnesota. That's really great. That's got to be helpful for some people. I should probably get there. I'm real busy. I was 260 pounds of real busy, right? That conference happens around Halloween. So all the vendors put out Halloween candy. So I was 260 pounds of real busy a member of Order, Overeaters Anonymous with a gift bag, you know, the free bag they give you at a conference full of Halloween candy. I made it to core finally a little over a year later, right? Because sometimes that seed is planted and boy, what a stubborn seed we can have. And it took me until, and I got to core and I was really kind of disgruntled about being there. And I have to sit in the participant's chair rather than I could run this joint, frankly, right? Because honestly, the ego involved in addiction too. And it took me until about day two and a half as I was sitting there and I thought, boy, I really need a treatment. I really, and I really, truly, it washed through me how this, this is primary. And honestly, that's 20 some years into addiction as a professional, my wanting to be in integrity about recovery and addiction as an illness and two and a half days into core, it occurred to me, this is really important. This is a primary thing in your life and, and you need this and you need to do this. You really need to take this seriously now. And um, I haven't looked back. I mean, except for, I guess, except for hindsight and, and truth and honesty. And, you know, seven, I'm a little over seven years into abstinence and with grace and love for, you know, I call her chubby Nancy, I call her whatever, because it's been such a journey to get here. But what a relief. And it's so interesting that you go from that battle. And I've known that about addicts, you know, when the addict is front and center and what a, and from my own experience with that at CORE, it's been really remarkable. And I remember when I left CORE for the first time, free of all flour, all processed sugars, all sweeteners. And even that first 30 days out of CORE, I would go to bed at night and I would, I would just think, I, whoa, 
I did this today. And it wasn't a struggle. It was busy. I had to plan my food. I had to prepare food like I hadn't been doing. I had to eat differently. But even, you know, that that when you go to bed at night and you're kind of reviewing your day, doing that inventory, I guess, it was unbelievable to me that I had made it through a day. And I know that had to do with taking out those sugar, flowers, for me, processed flowers, any flowers, and sweeteners. Wow. Um, It's quite a story. Yeah, that's quite a story. And one piece that I really appreciate hearing is, you know, you use that word buzzkill. Like, I feel like a buzzkill when I'm telling the the sugar addict, you got to stop all this. It's like, oh man, what a buzzkill. And it's good to know that nevertheless, a seed may be planted. Yes. And, you know, when I think about, because I have the same thing here, I have people that get to core and I'm going to say, like, even last month, if I had 12 people sitting there, there was a couple people that had come back to to get reconnected. And the majority of the people I felt like were like, wait a minute, what? What are we doing? Let's talk about a buzzkill, right? And now they're going to live with me for five days and I'm going to just go on and on about this. What I know to be true about that feeling is how, how deep this addiction is. When I'm 260 pounds... And someone suggests to me what I could do for health. Someone healthy who has been where I am suggests to me something I can do for health. And I fu- it feels like a buzzkill. That's that denial that goes with addiction. That's how dependent I am on that substance. Because it's even though I cognitively know that I need to stop eating so much, I still see that as you're ripping an arm off to take away that. Uh, but so it feels like that. So tell us about CORE then. I'm really interested to know, like, how did it start? What does core stand for? Does it stand for something specifically? And, you know, it's basically the structure of it. Yes. Core stands for heart in Latin, heart or soul in Latin. And uh, the founder, Bert Nordstrand, had been in recovery, had gotten into recovery in his, in over his lifetime journey from all the things, you know, the things that we talk about, whether it's work or alcohol or excess. And he's written a book. It's called Living with the Enemy which is specific to the food and our food issues really being, I think, the bottom line most difficult. And so he's written a book called Living with Enemy. And he was connected with a treatment program in Minnesota called The Retreat. And that was an offshoot from Hazelden, essentially some people from Hazelden that were working with insurance-driven treatment, which we all know, addiction treatment. And they said, you know, we know that the 12 steps works pretty good. It's a pretty good model. We're going to go over here and we're going to start a treatment program where we can work with the 12 steps and where we can have a spiritual-based treatment program. And it's going to be a cash pay only, reliant on donors and nonprofit and such. And so Bert had been part of that movement when it developed in his own recovery and always wanted to do it for food. The retreat at one point, the actual program itself built the building that they were going to use for family programs. And Bert knew that they weren't using it all the time. And that was his opportunity to say, hey, I can do the food program that I've wanted to do, that I've I can do it there. And so we have a place that we rent, a beautiful building that we rent. And up the hill, they're doing regular alcohol drug treatment. And when we're not using it, family program comes and stays with their loved ones up the hill. But when we're using it, they have the chefs up in the kitchen prepare us abstinent food. They bring it down. We teach people there to weigh and measure. And the beauty of it is, at this point, the simplistic beauty is that it's not insurance-driven at this time. It's a spiritually-based 12-step model where we do... You know, I will refer to nutritionists. I don't... I really am... You know, I've been in 
in this field for a long time, I know to stay in my scope of things. And so we have a basic food plan that's developed from a combination of dignity of choice and food addicts anonymous that includes, you know, protein, starch in measured amounts, fat in measured amounts, vegetable, fruit, dairy, and a nutritionist that I can consult with if I have questions. So we teach people while they're at core from meal one to weigh and measure specific amounts. We sit down at a table, we eat together, which most of us aren't used to doing by the time we get to core. And then we we start to work on the illness model. We take from Dr. Silkworth's big book, The Doctor's Opinion, certainly, and make some comparisons with that. And we work steps one, two, and three while detoxing and while teaching people a food plan that they can take home and, and use. And it's short. It is inexpensive. It's $1,250, $1,250. Travel expenses not included if you have to travel from somewhere else, which we have people do. Certainly, Bert still funds part of it. It's nonprofit. So he, you know, he's been, he's had a really successful career in life. And it's important to him that it keeps going. And I couldn't be more grateful to be working there and, and being able to do it with, with some volunteers that are really regular and consistent. We have Speakers, the pandemic has provided in such an opportunity for this. When I went to court in 2014, the only speakers that they could have in would need to live in the Twin Cities area. We would have a speaker medallion meeting night on Saturday nights where the only people that could come in and celebrate anniversaries were the people that lived in the Twin Cities area. Imagine what the Zoom has had happen. We now have speakers. So this next month when I go into retreat, I can have a speaker from Michigan and a speaker from Boston and a speaker from California, core alumni in good food recovery coming in to speak and celebrate anniversaries on that night. And we've been able to put together two. Well, right now we have two Zoom support group meetings weekly that are ongoing. And that because of that model, that not this is not everybody, you know, this is a this is a gem, the model where you can do cash pay at that price. This just just doesn't easily happen other places. Thankfully, that model allows us to do that at no charge to the people that get to keep coming. You know, you you keep saying that it's a plus, a bonus, that you're not insurance funded. And my view has always been that's a super drag because private pay, people don't want to pay. They can't pay. It's too expensive. Like I, I, I come from up in Toronto. I come from a program called Renaissance and we had a food addiction program that was donated for somebody. And then once those donations ran out, that was it. That was it. So how is it that you, I mean, the price is like, I'm astounded at how, how low the price is given everything that, you know, it's a five day, everything included. It's the price of a trip to Cuba or a, you know, a cruise. <laughs> Maybe not Cuba. But Gosh, Vera, you know, I, the office takes care of most of the finances for core. And so I, Bird is a generous donator, I think, which again, that's just a gem. I mean, this is not, this is something that is unique. And uh, I'm able to keep it pretty simple. The cost pretty well with that. I think we have we have a contract that we have with the place that we rent from, and I'm going to keep going with this as long as we can. And I know that it may be time. You know, it could be limited. It that's the, that's what limits good treatment always, isn't it? Is funding, whether it's insurance or cash pay. We are lucky enough to be able to provide at this price right now. And I was just looking actually back. I was looking for a woman who had been there with us in 2018. And when she registered in 2018, the price was the same. So Bert Nordstrand, honestly, a big thanks, a hearty thanks to him that he's remained generous enough to maybe we break even, you know. I applaud donors, like, thank you. I mean, you're the only place that I'm aware of that is exclusively 
food addiction resident. Now, I might be wrong about that. I know there's a couple of other places, but I somehow don't know if they've survived. Like we did for a while, but so is it virtual right now or is it in person still? It's in person. And what we're doing now is we're having everybody, we're asking everybody to be fully vaccinated. And then we're having them do a COVID test within 72 hours, a negative test within 72 hours of onset of retreat, certainly asking them to limit any kind of contact in that three days before. And so far, so good. When we first started back to retreats, we did suspend them for a period of time. We would have six people. We would wear masks while we were doing them. We have not figured out a way that we could deliver core specifically, I think, with teaching people to eat, because that was the big thing for me. Now, I knew what I should be eating, right? I was not able to affect that in my daily life on my own. I wasn't able to. It's like an addiction. You're not able to stop drinking without being separated from it or to stop the drug. And so the teaching people specifically how to measure and weigh the food, sit down at the table, eat it together, detox, get just started on detox, really. Although interestingly, by Sunday, by the last day, I have people coming down the stairs saying, you know, my knees feel a little better already. Could that be happening? And if it's happening, it's happening. And so we didn't figure out a way to do it virtually. So we just did Zoom support. And then when we joined back, we would do six people. We would wear masks, except when we were eating, we would put chairs far apart. And now we've, and again, I think we have the luxury of saying you're coming voluntarily. There is a risk inherent. You know, if you're coming, there's a risk that you could contract COVID, but we're going to do everything we can to not. Right. So you mentioned that it was seemed to be really important for you that it was residential. And Molly, I mean, you also do this work. Don't you agree that there's a subsection of people that we treat that just really need that residential holding? Yes, absolutely. It's not for everybody, but yes, that I think that level of care has to match the severity of the disease. And there are, yeah, we know that there's people in the 12 step rooms that have gotten abstinent and are living amazing recovery that haven't come to core. Right. And I, I've always known from treatment from when I first started in 1995 in drug treatment, that treatment is this, this piece of the puzzle, right? It's, it's the beginning. It's a commencement into a different life. And I've always known from, for me, from my perspective and what I was taught is that to move you into the rooms where you're going to have ongoing recovery and, co- and connection is really important to have that spiritual shift that says, it's okay that I don't eat cookies. You know, I can be, I'm at my mom's house right now. This kitchen island on Christmas was full of food and that's not my food. And I didn't feel sorry for myself or, you know, others, I see others eating with impunity, right? Um, I didn't have that feeling. And so I've always known that that's one of the most important things for ongoing contentment and happiness in any kind of recovery. But there's people that find that without coming to core. There's people that find that in alcohol and drug addiction recovery without going to treatment. They walk into AA, they somehow are able. And then you see the people who, and you're like, ooh, you need to be separated. You you know, what works, works. Yeah. And so if, if someone needs to get to core, if it helps, and I would also say, you don't have to come to core. You don't have to meet me to find recovery from food addiction. If I do meet you, I'm going to be pleased to meet you and, and glad to work with you, hopefully. But it's, it's anybody that can find it and will find it that needs it. That's wonderful. Yes. I mean, one of the things I've discovered in this, the whole virtual Zoom world is that a lot can be done outpatient, like intensive outpatient. So like, you know, Molly, you do your groups and, you know, there's people I'm seeing more and more, which is delightful to see more and more outpatient stuff, but we still need that inpatient for that. Those people who just, they're terrified to sleep 
the first night without food. I mean, that would have been me, you know, like, how am I going to not have my food late at night? That kind of thing. So being in a setting where you're virtually unable to eat. I had, you know, 20 some years in sobriety and eight years in and out of Overeaters Anonymous. And I was not able to do it until I got to core. With all my knowledge and experience and recovery, I was not able to do it until I got started to get detoxed, I think. So just out of curiosity, is core co-ed or is it just women? It is co-ed, you know, and mostly women, because I think that's a lot of times the, the rooms for food addiction. It's, it's primarily women. And so if I do have men, we have a separate hallway and I just put them in their own hallway with their own bathroom that they use. And, you know, men do well if it's a group of 10 women and two of them. They tend to be perfect gentlemen, don't they? And so it's, we really have, you know, and we're mostly older. I would say we're mostly older people when we get to food addiction recovery. Not always. I've certainly worked with some young people. Man, I've got a young guy out of uh, Michigan who came to us a year ago this month when he was just finishing up a master's degree. And he, his life is, his future is completely different. You know, he is working it. he's doing service work. He's involved. He's lost a tremendous amount of weight and uh, his future has changed. So I do have young people, you know, he came to core from a house that he shared with eight fellow students at Michigan university, right? Not typical, but still hope for him and a place he had a place there. So it is co-ed at times this month. I've got one guy this month coming in February. So you run your programs. Does it look like it was two a month? Is that sort of how it works? Typically one a month. And then when we have two, we have what's called Encore, right? Yay, we get to do it again. And we in Encore, we take people from the fourth step forward. So while they're with us for that period of time, they work on a fourth step inventory from the 12 steps. And then we have them share a fifth step. So we, we take the time to have them sit with someone and do a fifth step. Now with COVID, some of those are over Zoom, of course, because we don't have a lot of people coming in. We can't have the guests and speakers coming in that we used to anymore, but we uh, have them do a fifth and then we work on the rest of the steps. So we have Encore three times a year. At this time, it's three times a year. We could, I could probably add one more and fill it up. And do you have like a waiting list or is it, is it always filled that week or, and is there a waiting list or how, how does that look? We have been full every month since we returned after COVID. A waiting list, usually up to five people long, you know, a lot of times people are able to then register for the next month or the month after and plan it into their schedule. And then sometimes a spot opens up. I just called a woman today and I said, a spot just shifted around. You can come next week. And she's coming, you know, and that's always so hopeful when someone's willing to say, yep, I'll do it. And they don't think too hard about it. Right. And so it's really interesting in that it shifts, but waiting lists usually no more than five people. I'd say it somehow manages to fill, but not feel overwhelming. I feel very confident in saying this. If someone can figure out a way to do what we're doing in Wyzetta, Minnesota, somewhere else, Bert Nordstrand would say, do that. I think he would be pretty open with his curriculum. It's a wonderful curriculum. It's very simple, but it's simple, but works, right? And I think he would say, in fact, we were sitting with someone, he had come to dinner to join us at a Saturday dinner. And we were talking with an alumni who was from upstate New York, who has worked in, you know, the helping profession. And Bert said to him, if you can figure out a way to do this in upstate New York, I will will support you. And I would be willing to go help you get it going and so that we could help people. Merely for the, the idea that we want to help people find this as a gateway, a way to get into recovery, peaceful, 
healthy, good recovery from food addiction because it's killing us. You know, we all have someone we love or someone we know that we're watching struggle or the clients we've worked with that primary care physicians. I've had a couple of primary care physicians go through core in the last year and being able to speak to them about, you know, this is maybe the entry point. That's what I believe is maybe when the world opens up again, that I would like to be standing at a primary care conference and talking to primary care physicians and saying, this is here for people that you're working with, with the illnesses that you're seeing. You know, Vera, you were talking about it in your on the Quit Sugar Summit. I, I so much appreciated your talk with Michael Collins about metabolic disorder, you know, and needing to talk about it and the stuff that goes with it, you know? So with all of that being said, you know, which I think is an amazing gift that he'd be willing to do that, to open his curriculum up to anybody else who, you know, could potentially get this going anywhere else. You know, what can somebody expect if they call you up? I'm guessing there's some sort of screening process or intake process. They get accepted. They come. What does the program, what does it look like? Well, again, you know, it's pretty simple. It's very basic and simple and it's able to be again, which is unique. And thank you to however universe has, has aligned to have this exist for 10 years now. It really, they can email or give me a call and I'm going to call them back. And there's been a couple people that I've screened out in three years, but not many. Again, we stay within the scope. Certainly, I think there's been some people with other issues that maybe have gone through core that, but it hasn't been, I don't think, harmful in any way to them to simply come to core. So there's not much of a screening process other than they're willing to come, they're open. We're able to work with anything that they have in terms of needs, special needs or food plans, things like that. Once in a while, I get some with a lot of allergies and things that can be a little tricky, but we do our best to work with it. Tell us about your curriculum. And then I want to ask you about the 12 steps step. Well, our curriculum is basically we have the time we're together. It's steps one, two, and three. And so we start with talking about step one. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol or over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. And I talk a lot about the honesty piece of that. So that's where we, I spend a lot of time in step one, really talking about the truth of where we're at with our food. The truth of how it's what it's looked like over time, they write their food history down and share that in a small group. So we break into small groups and they share their food history from the, their early memories with food and the significance of it throughout their lives. And then we work on step two, which I believe is about, am I starting to understand that I could maybe have this? You know, I think that so many of us live in that comparison, especially for me when I went into core weighing 260 pounds and I always talk about the first speaker that came in the first morning was a woman who was my worked as my an assistant with me for several years, just up until very recently. And she came in all healthy. And I talk about how she came in in her sassy little black boots, in her little jeans and her black sweater. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, mm-hmm, right? So we talk some about step two, which is that hope that could I possibly, because we can't imagine. I lived with my food addiction for so long. And with that, that I could not imagine that I could be healthy. I had kind of resigned myself to you know, I'm going to live like this. And so we work some on that. And then step three, really, truly, I talk a lot about the we. And sometimes my guests give me like the core alumni and stuff really give me crap about that. The we, which is the first word of the program. And I talk about, you need to know who your we is out there in this world. This is your we. Your mom is not your we, your siblings, maybe your spouse. If they don't have this, they don't get it and they don't have to get it. So when you're trying to navigate this food plan in your life, you don't look to your we to be supportive. You look to this we right here. 
And then this program that we have, this 12-step program will teach you how to be not only healthy and in recovery, but also be a better daughter, probably a good daughter, a good sister, a good mom, a good employee, right? So I talk a lot about this is where a connection happens. This is where it happens is with other recovering people. And this is where you can get, this is where you can vent about, you know, feeling frustrated when you can't eat certain things or when people push food on you or when people don't get it and don't understand. So we, I focus a lot on that with step three of making that connection with others in action. And what are you willing to do? You know, and I, and I'm sometimes people, I think do think that sometimes my, I'm kind of a hard ass, I guess, but I will look at people and say, if that's the hardest thing that you're being asked to do for health is to weigh and measure your food, you know, you need boundaries around your food. This is, that's all we're asking you to do is put some boundaries, give it a try and see what happens. Give it a try. Yeah. You know, you have a way of saying things so clearly like like that concept of the need for support i teach that all the time but you mm-hmm. said it really well choose your we you want to choose the right we and that's going to be your support and then this concept when you talk about boundaries you know the food boundaries well i'm thinking myself because i also weigh and measure my food and one of the things that i struggle with is i don't like people looking at me and judging but that's a boundary too like that's their business and this is my business and here i just let it go you know i don't you have a a really nice way of clarifying things so well in the we the one of the i learned the we about the we from my old mentor years ago in treatment the reason we want to know that is it it helps me take some of that frustration and conflict out of my relationships so i don't go home with an expectation i just let them off the hook and you know the less this the less likely i'm going to eat at somebody right I worked with a man in treatment so many years ago. His name was Richard. He was an old salty dog, I'm going to call him, right? He was a brilliant counselor and couldn't write a discharge summary to save his life. I had to redo his paperwork all the time. He used to say if he was going to write a treatment program, he would center it around the third step. Basically, what are you willing to do? Not what you want to do, but what are you actually willing to do? And caretaking and codependency in relationships, which is not wanting to hurt someone's feelings because they baked for me or cooked for me. So, you know, how do I not eat the food that someone says, but I made it for you? How do I not worry about what people think when I'm weighing and measuring my food or bringing my own food to a wedding? You know, how do I... And so Richard was brilliant in his idea that these are the two things that probably trip us up the most is am I willing to weigh my my meat and my starch and my salad? You know, and everyone, well, why do you have to weigh a salad? And I, there's a man that comes to court that speaks and he talks about that. And he says, because I don't need more, right? You know, the, free, the idea that things are free, like salad should be free. And he just says, because I don't need more than this amount. And he says it so simply. And so I think the truth in this stuff is always kind of simple. It's just a matter of finding that. Yeah. So, okay. So now I'm going to ask you, what about the people who come in and they go, Oh my God, 12 step. Ooh, like, how do you deal with that? Cause you're based in that model. Right. Mm-hmm. And they may not be that clear when they walk in that that is what it is. Right. I think the spiritual piece I approach from an idea and this, again, I've, you know, we're taught, I've learned so much along the way from people in my journey in professionally and personally, And spiritual, the word, the very word has a Latin root, which means to aspire, which is to breathe. So I start out by saying, if this is a spiritual thing, it's very personal. It doesn't have to be about religion or about you seeing this a certain way. I want you to learn about being comfortable in your skin and breathing. And so 
Cause that's one of the big things about the 12 steps, I think is the, the references to God. And, and so I try to really shift that into the verbiage is 1930 something. That's okay. That's right. Let's sift through what it actually means, what it's actually, because the spiritual concepts are universal. Nobody's got the market cornered on 11 service, right? Or being comfortable in your skin. Nobody's got the market, not any particular religion or, or institution has that. And so I try to really shift it for people into personalizing it and saying, how you've been living. The 12 steps are going to ask you, it's going to be a guide for you. And it's going to look different for everybody. You know, the four step, you know, there's ways to do that four step inventory. And when I hear someone say it has to be this way, no, it doesn't. Here's some guides. You know, it's speaking of fourth step, which makes me think of, you know, grievances and resentments and all that. We all know that when you take the food away from somebody, all the previous resentments and trauma and stuff come up. And at Renaissance, when we had our program sort of full blown, one of the things I used to, at the staff who were not food addicts, and then there were some that were especially trained, were like, oh my God, I didn't sign up for this. Because they they said that the alcoholics and the addicts who stopped their substance, well, they just went to their food. And that, that the ones that caused the most trouble, the most grief were those damn food addicts. Anybody listening here, I'm sorry, it probably wasn't you, but nevertheless, <laughs> you know, there was a lot of trauma and the staff were like running out of the door going, I, I didn't sign up for this. So what, what do you do with, uh, you know, hardcore stuff that's been buried and now is being unburied in five days? Well, it, right. And I think that in five days, I think I'm lucky because it's time limited, right? And then I just hope that they, I hope that they lean into the support we have and I let them know it's okay because you're not, you know, I have big shoulders. And so I do tell them that. And sometimes I've had core alumni talk about how they went up to their room and they were really pissed at me about certain things that I said or certain things that, and just the, you know, really sensitive. That's the that's addiction front and center, isn't it? You know, that's that. And I think patience and letting people know it will pass. I'm a big fan of recommending to anybody in any kind of recovery, take a nap, you'll get up, you'll eventually get up, right? If all else, because isn't that what we do for a little kid that was cranky? Take a nap, just take a nap. You know, you will eventually find that energy back. You will eventually. And again, back to that unhook and know who your we is. You do not have to do relationship work early in recovery. And, and giving them trauma work early in recovery, right? No, not, no. You just got to get, and so trying to keep it always, I'm a big fan of take that breath. I teach them that and we talk about that. They probably get tired of me saying that at core. I've had people say they're so sick of hearing about the we, you know, which for whatever reason just annoyed them on any particular day. But I'll keep saying it, you know, and we do have to, I think as as professionals, we all know that you don't personalize it. You know, if we know we're in integrity, if we have that unconditional positive regard for our clients, where we really just appreciate that they're here and they're trying something, you don't take it personally when they get really salty. It's sometimes it's hard not to, but you know, and you talk about it, you know, maybe laugh about it a little bit. Sense of humor always breaks things up. I think that's one of the things I think I always have to work on as a professional is I have to always remember they might not be there with some of the stuff that I think that I can look back on and kind of laugh about. Have you you ever had any traumatic like situations where traumas come up and you just didn't know what to do? Yes, I have. I've had some dissociative, I'd say some during a history I know. And I think, I think in the moment, knowing that I can't fix it, 
and doing whatever you can to neutralize it at the time and make the person safe to help them feel safe enough to continue. And then certainly I have had where I've said to someone, I really think along with doing this program, it's really important for you to to get therapy, to work with a therapist, you know. Do you have contacts? Like, do you have people that you can rely on to help along with that? Well, because they're coming from all over, no. So I, if, but if someone needed me to help them find, if someone was not familiar with how to access that, I would absolutely help them. You know, we could sit down at four and go online if we needed to, or I would follow up with them after and say, I will help you find that in your area. Because some people that's, you know, in the same way that some people, not everybody needs residential treatment. Some people really do need to have that extra layer of support. Yeah, I totally agree. So that it doesn't, because then it, it could be, you know, dangerous in some ways. Yeah. So that leads to the next idea about how do you deal with relapse? Well, we, you know, you try again. You know, we don't shoot our wounded, number one, right? That's an old program saying. And you try again, because what's the option? You move forward. You maybe look at what happened, but not for too long, right? Because it's not, we usually know what kind of didn't, and you move forward. And sometimes you say, if that wasn't working, then let's try something else. You don't stay stuck in the idea that only this one thing is going to work. Like, I, I don't believe that, you know, say I have someone who was working with a sponsor, but didn't check their food in every day. And they've, you know what I mean? I'm not married to absolutely one way of doing everything. Again, spirituality is as personal as my own breath. So one of the most valuable things I learned from one of my first mentors was they have their answers, right? Inherently, we have the answer. I need help to stay in the solution, to stay solution-oriented. So when relapse happens, I think it's based on what was going on in that person's life and taking a look at that and saying, let's try again. I have people that come back to core. One of their biggest fears when they come back to core is that they're going to look bad to the new. They do not want to ruin it for someone brand new coming in. And I always say, well, you came back here, which is a good sign. So this must be a safe place to come back to. And the idea that you don't want to ruin it certainly indicates that you understand how special recovery can be. Because if you didn't value it, you wouldn't worry about devaluing it. And so I think relapse is always an individually based, but overall support. And honestly, in life, what's the option? If someone comes back to us after a relapse, they're in some way saying, I don't want to keep living the way I was because I'm back here to try it again. And then we see what wasn't working. And back to step one, honesty, like honestly, what wasn't working, right? Is there something that you do that protects you from, I mean, I know uh, working in addictions that it's very easy to get invested in somebody getting clean and sober and over years or over months of, it's hard not to get jaded. Like, what do you do to protect yourself from this work, I guess? I always work my own program. I do think that working in, in recovery and addiction is a blessing to my life in recovery overall. I maintain that I have to work a program that going to work is not my program. So I always maintain my own path with that and some bound, a little few boundaries with that for sure. And I also, one of the things I'm, I'm interesting that you asked that when, you know, so seven years ago when I got into recovery with food and I started to put boundaries around my food, I would have at that time not acknowledged that I had boundary issues, period, in my life. And what happened is I realized it, I did indeed have boundaries issues, which I still work on. And I think that coming into this food recovery, even more so than all the years I worked in alcohol and drug addiction before, I started to also have boundaries around how invested I felt in someone's success or failure. You know, where I knew if I was doing the best I could do 
with that person that the journey is theirs. And again, not taking it personally and not overdoing, you know, that balance of did I offer the help that I could or the support or the resources that I could? And then we know that if we're more invested, it won't work. That if we're working harder, it won't work, you know, and having other people to talk to in my life. I do have trusted people like Carrie who worked with me alongside with me at CORE for several years. I can call her anytime and ventilate a little bit and get her take on something, you know, so... That's something we all, I mean, we all want to know. I really did have a really good mentor early in my addiction career who said, you're not responsible for their success. You didn't do that, (laughs) you know? And also you can't feel if someone doesn't make it, you got to let them go. Mm -hmm. So good mentorship. So if someone wants to open that core in upstate New York or Toronto or wherever, I will be a mentor, right? I think it's my 55th birthday today. So I'm passing into that part of life where I get to teach now, where, where I get to, I guess I'm probably the age that that first mentor of mine Coming was. on your birthday. Happy birthday. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, yes, but, you know, you. I would mentor someone to learn that in working with people. Because aren't we blessed? You know, my, my, that same mentor used to say, we're so lucky we get to see more miracles than most people. And I'll never forget, I was shopping with my sister, in, you know, at the Target store or whatever. And we were looking at makeup and it was, she was working in mortgage banking at the time. And so we were getting mascara and I said, well, I got to get waterproof. She's like, oh, I hate that stuff. You can't get it off at night. Why would you want to wear that? And I said, well, what if I cry at work? So picture a mortgage banker. I mean, the look on her face was like horrified. Like, why would you cry at work? You know, like her day, like that would ruin your career. Right. I mean, I think it's like not a bad day at work if a few tears are falling. Yeah. So I can so relate to your story. I had a, an amazing, I always told her that she ruined me because she was so amazing that I could never really work for anybody else. And I haven't, I've gone on to work for myself after not working with her. I started out in corrections, but doing mental health and substance use disorder. And so, yes, I learned early on their successes are not my successes. And as soon as I figured that out, I knew that their when they fell down, it was not because of me either. And, and that showing up and, and just being there. And there was one year that I lost five clients to overdose, drinking and driving and suicide. And like within the span of like three months and now keep in mind, I started in this work when I was 22. So, I mean, I was young. I didn't have children yet, right? Like it was just this, it was horrifying, but I think Again, we have to go through some of that as clinicians to even still be able to show up with the empathy and meet people where they are. And that's what I hear you doing. And so even though I hear you say there's this curriculum that you follow with CORE, it also sounds like there's room for individualization. Is that accurate? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's the paradigm of the 12 steps. The food plan, I do... I do tell them they have a, actually, they just posted a funny picture of me and it was don't F with the food plan. So I do ask them outside of any medical issues that you know about today, right? Don't F with that. Try it for 30 days. Don't be thinking I'm hungry. I'm this, just trust it. I could line up 125 people that are going to tell you this will work. This will work. So I'm pretty stringent about that. Unless someone has an allergy, certainly, then we'll figure out what to do different. But the amounts and the foods, don't skip your fats. I'm the fat police on that food line. I stand at the end and you are not skipping your two fat servings at lunch or dinner. We're going to, well, I don't really want one. You're going to have, so what is it going to be? But outside of that, I think those 12 steps, like I said, the spirituality is personal. And however you find that or describe that is is what it's going to be for you. 
you know, and here's just, you can look up step two. If you read it in a 12 by 12, Overeaters Anonymous has amazing literature that we've written stories and, and F.A., I've got a woman who's going to speak at this next, that's in F.A. She's got an amazing program in, in that program. And so now she'll be able to sponsor people if they're interested in that. And I feel F.A. seems like it's more coastal in the United States. And the Midwest here tends to be OA-centered. And you don't have much GSA, eh? Gray Sheet? Mm-mm. No, I don't hear much about Gray Sheet yeah, anymore. Mm-mm. And I do think that's always been more coastal too, probably more California, West Coast. Mm-hmm. And so, but any one of them, you know what I mean? If whatever is going to work for you, find it. And you can look at 12, you can look at the steps, you can read any number of literature pieces to get an understanding of what is step two mean. What is hope to me? What do I hope to have? Because that's the principle that goes with step two. So we talk about steps one, two, and three, and then which is honesty, hope, and faith and helping them examine what does that mean for you in terms of this right now? What would that look like in your life moving forward? And then it sounds like you have this encore where you guys do the fourth step and you move them through the fourth and fifth step. But what does aftercare look like from that original one week time period? Do you set them up with aftercare wherever they're going home to? You know, what does that look like? Yeah. That again is what's fascinating. That's, that's wonderful about the Zoom thing is that since COVID, when we had to suspend retreats, we developed just meetings to keep in touch. So we just started doing Zoom meetings. Well, now that we went back into having retreats, I've got a Sunday evening one and a Wednesday morning one that people can just come to. There's just an open invitation to come to either one. Those are not 12-step meetings. So we can introduce non-OA, you know, conference-approved literature. We could do some different things in those. Those, I'd say, are more aftercare. Certainly, we want them to find the rooms, the 12-step rooms in their communities. Absolutely. I want them to find those. I've got an alumni whose recovery story came out today. So if anybody wants to subscribe to our newsletter, Stephanie's recovery story came out today. She's an alumni and she started Zoom meetings on Tuesday and Wednesday nights. She couldn't make the other two. So she started them on Tuesday night and Wednesday night. And when Tuesday night, they're doing a reading, a reading and journaling about it and sharing in groups. And then Wednesday night, they're doing a 12 and 12 study all on their own. And we say core alumni, the we, we call it the we meetings, but also friends of core. So if someone has a friend that is in you know, the program and, and wants to be invited and to get extra support, we're open to that. What a blessing we were able to do that. And I just, you know, when, when we weren't doing retreats, as an employee of CORE, you know, as the program director and an employee really of Bert and Bert and his, a couple people at the office, his sister Gail and Kathy are the other two that I work with there. I just, I felt like that was part of my job. I really feel like I have a really good job. I go into actual work five days a month. So I was willing to do two Zoom, Zoom meetings a week as part of the whole thing, even though that was something that came up with COVID. So right now, again, really fortunate, very blessed to be able to offer that for free for ongoing. So that's technically like aftercare, I would say. You know, I, did, I worked in primarily outpatient for many years in alcohol and drug treatment. And that same mentor that I talk about, he had his own privately owned company or his own privately owned treatment. And he would provide people, you could come to aftercare for as long as you want, just ongoing. I had a women's group I would do on Friday nights back in the old, like the treatment days when I was working in contract treatment that was just open-ended and women would come back for two years on Friday nights. It was the best group of the week. I never minded working Friday nights. And he did that specifically, yes, to ruin your weekend, right? Or 
make your weekend happen. I never minded working Friday nights because I always ended with that beautiful women's group. And you could just keep coming back. Once you were done with your prescribed number of sessions, we were done billing you. I was going to be there doing group anyway. Can I ask you one question? This is, I should have asked this earlier. I got to ask this. Sorry, Molly. What about, do you insist that people stop drinking alcohol, smoking pot, or doing other addictions like in your program or in the general philosophy? I strongly recommend that, but I would not say that I work on that. Again, it feels like it's outside of the scope of what Core Retreat's doing. Certainly, there's been people that have realized those issues along the way. I hope that I'm open enough that they talk to me about it, and I have certainly helped people find some resources for cross-addiction stuff if they need more help, Mm -hmm. because it's part of it. Absolutely. So what, if any, challenges or obstacles has CORE had to face? Do you come up against the eating disorder therapists of the world? Do you come up against physicians that don't think that this is a thing? I mean, this is stuff we battle every day. And so I'm just wondering if if you have somehow figured out how to be immune to it or... (laughs) Yeah, talk to us about that a little bit. Well, I think because we're able to do it the way we do it, somewhat quiet in Wayzata in this idyllic setting, I think that we don't intersect too often. And, you know, I may have some people that see their doctors that may not understand or something, but I don't really come into direct contact with them. I do know that that exists when I have gone. The last time I went to a professional counselor conference for my alcohol and drug addiction license, I went to a nutrition and treatment recovery setting, right? And the first thing out of the gate, they said is right off the bat, we're not going to eliminate any foods. You eliminate foods, all you do is obsess about them. We're not doing that. That's not what we're talking about here. And I was like, "Mm," you know, and I know that some of the premier eating disorder places have usually have a session at that one. And honestly, I don't go anymore. I think I would go to a different session. Do I want to change the world? Yeah. But in the day, is it helpful? Am I going to change the world by engaging with someone at a professional conference? I mean, I feel like a younger Nancy probably feels like she could have. (laughs) But now that I'm 55, no, I'm teasing. So I do know that that's out there. I right now feel somewhat protected or almost like, you know, like I'm in a bubble at core being able to do what I do. I definitely tapping in and listening to the Quit Sugar Summit kind of ignited that fire in me for sure, you know, of wanting to get the word. I was so excited to come on here just so that... And like I said, I've had a couple of people in professional, you know, physicians, like people that have established careers that have come through poor and they're going, whoa, we didn't know. And I'm like, I know you didn't. I know you didn't know. So that's my dream is Vera, I will meet you at a professional primary care physicians conference. How about it? We'll set up a booth, right? Molly, we'll all be there. You know, when we were doing virtuals, I did speak at the family practice uh, thing at one point, and there were so many physicians that came up to me and they said, okay, where's the treatment? What do we do? And at that point, we didn't even have the outpatient stuff like Molly and Chrissy are doing. Like we had nothing, very little. And, uh, you know, I'm like super interested in because there is a demand. It's just, it has to be made affordable and you've got some package where it's affordable. Yeah. Yes. We'll, we'll talk and I you. think, you know, when we're, when I'm talking about it starting somewhere else, I think that you could probably charge more. You know what I mean? I don't know that it would have to remain. I, I maybe shouldn't say that for, from a business standpoint, I, I'm not very business woman like, but I think that even if it had to cost more than it does, it's still reasonable somewhere else. If it was at a place that the costs were higher to run it, or it's still worth it. If you can keep it within a certain, I would say, 
And then if you do have donors, which I have some people that you can offer some limited scholarships, hopefully, and keep it going, you know, that would be the dream. And that's something you definitely have wanted to realize here, I know, in your, you know, experience up in Toronto. And Mm -hmm. shift, which is now, I guess it's like shift recovery by Acorn. It used to be Acorn. Mm -hmm. I think they think you guys have similar models and they do residential, just sometimes they're in Florida and sometimes they're in British Columbia. And they, I think, I think their price point's a little bit higher, but I think it's right all in that same area. So there are, you know, there are a couple options for anybody listening. And certainly I keep a running list of resources. Dr. Kim Dennis has SunCloud Health right over in Chicago. So not too super far from you. And she runs a dual, like she treats eating disorders and food addiction at the same time and has a 30 day, I, I believe it's 30 day. She does have inpatient. So she does have residential and outpatient stuff going on. And then Marty Lerner with milestones over in Florida has the dual yeah. thing yeah. going on too. So, so more and more, there are more opportunities, but core is always one that when people are looking for something affordable and in the States, I'm also in the States, I'm in Montana. So I, you know, like core is the one that I'm like, go there go Thank call you. them up yeah call, call nancy honestly yeah. call nancy and we'll see yeah yes absolutely That's, yes mm-hmm. yeah so vera i have one more question for nancy obviously to wrap this all up but before i do that did you have any more questions for nancy no okay Thank you. I've done, I've I've done my questions. (laughs) Sounds good. So Nancy, we have, we have a signature question that we like to ask all of our guests or some version of it. And so for you, the question that I would love to ask you is if you could tell a younger version of yourself, something about food addiction, sugar addiction, whatever it is you call it for yourself, what would it be? Be honest, open, and willing. You're not weak. You don't lack willpower. You're not lazy. You are trying. You've tried really hard and surrender. You know, keep an open mind. Definitely be willing. That whole thing of just being willing to, you know, that not yet. Like, stop trying to control it. And that doesn't mean that there's not planning and preparing. No, no, no. Just stop trying to control this thing. And I, there is so much freedom in being able to look at that little girl, that little Nancy that's eating her candy and everybody else's candy. And that drive I had for that sugar that allows me to know that this isn't something I did wrong in my life. It just, that combined with some perfect storm of my sensitivities or whatever I had was a physiological response that I had to sugar that I always knew I had to alcohol and I definitely knew I had to cigarettes, right? Because some people smoke a cigarette, they cough, they throw up, they're done. You know, I did that and I thought, well, it was pretty good before I threw up, right? Try that again. We all know if we have addiction, we all know that that sensation. So just that idea that if I look back at my true history with this, this isn't something that I, that I, I guess was within my, I didn't script this in my life. It just was mine. That's kind of like if someone needs glasses, you know, they need glasses to see better. They didn't do anything to have that. There's a guy that comes to speak at core that talks about that in a much more sensible way about the glasses. And he compares himself as a kid obsessing about the pudding, right? They're outside playing and his mom has made, the mom's made pudding. He's like, what about the pudding? Are we going to eat the pudding? What about the pudding? And he says that same friend of his wore glasses and, you know, he can see now that he had this physical issue in the same way that his friend had bad vision, poor vision. Mm-hmm. So I love it. Thank you so much for being here, especially on your birthday. <laughs> Happy yeah, birthday. What a great way to spend the afternoon, right? Gifting us. Yes. Gifting us with your presence. And mm-hmm. I'm just excited for everybody to get to hear about mm-hmm. core and hear about you and maybe mm-hmm. feel even more connected to your program, knowing yes. they get to meet you, you yes. know? And so thank you so much. Thank you. Thank we you very fun. much. We are part of your, we 
Yeah, yes, for sure. My and you know what's happening tonight? My son and his fiance are making an abstinent dinner. He's gonna grill some steaks and a baked potato and a salad because they know that that's one of the meals I can eat. And I'll weigh and measure my food, right? Sure. But I'll eat. I'll sure enjoy it. It'll be a good meal. Mm-hmm. Right. What a great way to spend a birthday. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies: Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.